Design can be found in everything we touch, see and hear. I'm Luke Irwin and I've always been fascinated by making the sometimes rarefied world of design more accessible. This recording is from the By Design talk series created by the Sir John Soane Museum in partnership with me. These talks invite some of the most innovative and well-respected designers of our generation to discuss one everyday object that has inspired their design practice. The interviewers for the series are Will Gompertz, arts editor at the BBC, and Alice Rawsthorne, design writer and critic. These intimate conversations take place in the candlelit dining room of Sir John Soane's museum, bringing to life Soane's long-held ambition to create an academy of the arts where all forms of design can be celebrated. In this conversation, Will Gompertz talks to iconic graphic designer Peter Saville, who shaped the consciousness of an entire generation through his album cover designs for Joy Division, Pulp, and New Order. Good, good evening, ladies and uh, gentlemen. I, isn't it great to be here? Yeah. Don't you think? After dark in the, in the, in the Sir John Soane Museum. It's a special treat for, for me to be here talking to Peter Saville, who I think is one of the most important, I'm going to use this advisedly, by the way, Peter, you might not like it, but one of the most important visual artists of, of no, the last... I'm, I'm okay with that. I thought you might be. Yeah. Of, the la- of the last 40 years, um, and just a chance to hear about his inspirations, his career, what he's thinking about right here and right now is something I think it's, uh, we all would like, like to hear. I don't really need to go into his backstory, but very quickly, uh, you know, he's done quite well, really, from the moment he left college in Manchester to co-founding Factory Records, to making some of the, the most famous, the most important record sleeves in the history of pop and rock music, to going on to drift towards being an artist, we'll talk a bit more about that, a visual artist, uh, to becoming the creative director for uh, Manchester, the city of Manchester, which has had an extraordinary transformation in the last decade and a half, uh, and also a very big hand in Manchester International Festival, which was is a most wonderful sort of... Uh, multi-arts festival which has these live commissions which has sort of transformed uh, a sort of a non-London uh, art scene and particularly in Manchester. So Peter Seville, so his imprimatur is all over the place uh, and uh, but he did say to me just now and I've never heard him say anything like this before actually in his life he said with all these people I'm a little bit shy I know it's quite sweet isn't it so I thought just to make Peter feel a little less shy could you all just give him a very warm round of applause please. <laughs> So, Peter, we've got, a lot, nice, of, we got, we got a lot of ground to cover. Um, I'm just going to mention one thing. Oh, yeah. The, the Mansion notice, because it, it, there's no real reason for it to come up later, but the festival has now evolved into this factory art centre that they're yes, building, which is sort of right. probably due to open 2020, 2021, which is, a, I think, a £100 million uh, interdisciplinary art centre, which is now opening in Manchester as the home of the International Festival as a, a workshop and performance uh, space, um, which they're naming the factory. Yes, exactly, because nice. obviously after, after everything you did and Tony Wilson, but, yeah. but, uh, and, and about the Northern Powerhouse, and then people say the arts don't matter. Well, they can. Don't you think? Well, they can matter. I think it's a matter... It, well, actually, I mean, what we're going to talk about this evening is, is very uh, pertinent to that. They can matter. It's just really a case of... <laughs> of how people experience them and, and whether they experience them in a way that can be made meaningful and relevant to their lives. Mm. I mean, you, you know, the Manchester, you know, my work in Manchester fell into the, the kind of the regen era 
and, uh, and you know, undeniably, you cannot regenerate an area by just landing an art center in it. That's really not going to work. Um, there has to be a community there who are interested in that art center mm. and, and that want it in order for it to be a kind of uh, live and organic um, entity from, from, from the beginning. I mean, it's better to actually support the grassroots of things that are actually happening in a place rather than just sort of drop a, you know, a museum there and imagine that everyone's going to leave London, Paris and New York mm. and go to Hull or wherever just because they've got an art gallery. That's quite plainly not going to work. But probably let's not turn the evening into a regen evening. Well, we're going to come back to Manchester because obviously it's very important. Okay. But we, let's, let's start with objects yes. and objects that inspired you. Okay. And very specifically, Peter, the handout that you put onto everybody's yeah. chair. Yeah. Um, that's a work by Richard Hamilton from 1967 called Toaster. And I uh, first saw that actually in Manchester. And I saw this book in um, one of the libraries at Manchester Polytechnic um, in 1975. And it was either um, in my foundation year or in first year. There was a graphics department that had a small library. I went to look around. And pop art was really the only aspect of fine art that I really knew anything about. Mm. Um, uh, when I'd been doing A-level at school, we'd done history of architecture rather than history of art. So I didn't really have any art history education. And other than some Victorian oil paintings on the wall at home, that was it. But pop is one of those things that teenagers self-learn. And so I'd self-learn pop. And, um, you know, things like the the relatively new Sunday Times magazine in the mm -hmm. late 60s was the kind of thing, uh, kind of one of the kind of mediums through which some information came in. There was no modern art in Manchester um, then, um, and there isn't much now. But anyway, I found, I came across this book and, um, and I'd gone to the Polytechnic intent on studying graphic design, even though I didn't really know what graphic design was but I was fascinated uh, by record covers, as most sort of teenagers you know, were, to some extent still are, but certainly in the 60s and 70s, the record cover for most you know, ordinary kids, the record cover was the single most vital uh, um, link yeah. to any kind of interesting or different visual material outside of your you know, normal existence. It was a know. way into contemporary art. It was a way in, you know, uh, uh, and introduce you to things that sort of family or school or the nation did, didn't think was, you know, part of the curriculum. Um, so record covers were important and... Um, S such as? Some of the, obviously, the Beatles covers. Um, you know, I was 12 when Sgt. Pepper's came out, and, you know, a 12-year-old could understand it. Then there was Hamilton's album, the White Album, that yeah. baffled me um, in my early teens. There were Hawkwind covers done by Barney Bubbles. They were extraordinary. Uh, there was the Velvet Underground. I had older brothers, so, so the, the Velvet Underground albums were there, and the Velvet Underground with Nico was a cover that I adored, and so it was that. there was Andy Warhol's presence. So, with the, so there was this sort of kind of a, a little network of, of relationships between music and visual art and pop art that I was beginning to just sort of piece together. Mm. Um, Myself and my best friend Malcolm Garrett at school, we were, we were demonstrating this in the art room at school, doing O-level art and A-level art. And our, we had a young progressive teacher who saw what we were doing and suggested that we go to college to do graphic design. Um, we didn't know what it was, but sounded, it seemed to be 
a career in doing what we liked doing as 16 year olds. And of course that was quite attractive to 16 year olds. Um, and he also told us that it was about to become a degree um, as opposed to a diploma. So that provided an alibi you could go home and tell your parents that you did after all want to do a degree. That was the good news. The bad news was it was in commercial art. Um, anyway, so I, I, so I went to college kind of determined to, to do record covers. Really? Um, okay. Uh, Malcolm and I were, you know, we were intelligent enough to realize that the, the professional sphere of graphic design was a kind of um, a, a more, um, a more professional and business related activity. We could understand that. Um, but, you know, we were 18 or 19, and as far as we were concerned, you know, a logo for British Airways was something that could wait until we were 40. And that we were certain that, you know, when we were grown up, that kind of thing would appeal to us. But in the meantime, um, we wanted to be part of the culture that, that we were living, which was to change dramatically whilst we were at college. In 76, was in the middle of our four years at art school, uh, punk happened and there was a sort of coup d'etat in youth culture. And, and did you feel it? Oh, we were absolutely in the, in the very midst of it. Oh. Malcolm, was, um, Malcolm was a few months ahead of me. He made friends. We had a, a friend at college called Linda Sterling, who was like Linda Mulvey there. Linda was in illust the illustration class a year ahead of us. She was very close to Howard Devoto, who, was, who founded the Buzzcocks and then magazine. Whilst we were still in the second year, Malcolm was doing the um, covers and advertising for the Buzzcocks. Yeah which I was very envious of. Um, but then by the time I was in the third year, I was doing the first posters for the factory. So, so that, that coup d'etat moment fast-tracked us into actual work. I mean, you know, I mean, if you wanted to be paid, that was another thing. But if you just wanted to do something, there, was, there were people who needed things doing. Yeah. Um, you know, had we had to kind of pay our dues, and waited four, five, six years before we were allowed to do anything, you know, a conventional go and be an assistant in a studio and wait for years before they let you do something, uh, our, you know, our progress might have been very different. Um, we might even have given up. This is, so Peter, it's a really tangential question, but, yeah. but if it had cost the equivalent of nine grand a year ah, then okay. to go to art college, well, would that's you- That's a contemporary question. Would you, would um, you, would you have gone? I would have at least had the opportunity to ask, having um, middle-class parents and a very lenient father who actually didn't want me to go to art college but had wanted to study architecture himself and been kind of forbidden by his father, my grandfather, dad had a certain sympathy towards this sort of foolish vocation. And, and, and indulged it. I think he thought that, you know, after this I would then go and, you know, join the family business with my, other, with my brothers. So he might have, but at least, uh, but that was, that was just an opportunity that, that, that might have been afforded me because I had parents who could have afforded it. Yeah. But of course, you know, that was a very privileged situation. And, and, and for the majority of people I was at college with, Malcolm, for example, was from a not s such sort of uh, comfortable background as I was, Malcolm might not have done, mm. along, with a, along with a lot of the other greatest people that have, that have been part of our, of our culture and industry for the last, I don't know. Yeah, 30, 40 years. years. Yeah, exactly. 
anyway, so it's a real problem. Um, um, anyway, I, I saw this book and picked it up because, you know, oh, there's something I recognize. It's Popper. And I recognize the name Richard Hamilton. And, um, and in the book, I spotted the image that, is, uh, that everyone got, got um, on their chairs. This 67 poster or print by Hamilton of this brawn toaster. And seeing it in this book, I recognized it as, as a fine artwork. It was not a design work to me, it was a fine artwork in the, in, the tradition, in, in the tradition of pop art. So it was a pop artwork which I identified as art. But its contents were entirely um, serious and, and, uh, and could be seen as a homage to the subject matter which was this toaster. Mm. Um, and so what I saw was a work of product design and a serious studio photograph of a work of product design in a page layout with text, uh, with a serious text that related to the product. So unlike, the, say, the majority of American pop art, which, is, you know, which was more often than not a parody or a critique of some sort, this was not a parody or a critique at all. It was actually a homage. It was an act. It was a, um, a work of great respect to the, the, the product, the toaster, which I was able to see embodying the values of modernism. Now, because I'd done architecture at school, I kind of knew about modernism. So I, could, I had enough information to find my way into this work. But most importantly, it was actually, it is, as a kind of... Um, in the form I saw it, it was a graphic work. Yeah. It, was a, it was an art direction and graphic design um, work. And I was studying graphic design. Because yeah, he's inserted the name Hamilton. Yes, but um, again, not, not in a derisory way. No, but it is exactly. a piece of graphic yeah, design. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, um, so what I, in this, in this glimpsed moment, I took something in which I was not aware at all that I was taking in. But what I took in was the potential for this convergence of the disciplines of both fine art or the applied arts and in, in a relation to fine art as a total work, as a work that did not recognize or acknowledge any hierarchical differences between the disciplines and between fine art and applied art, which was Hamilton's intent with the work and very much Hamilton's intent across his oeuvre to identify these po points of coordinate, uh, kind of coordinating points between how we live and the development of fine art. Mm. And I saw it and I thought that's nice and I put it back on the shelf. And that was it for the next 20 years. And then one day in 95, I wandered into Tommy Roberts's shop that he'd opened called TomTom. Near, um, near Center Point. And uh, Tommy was a, a famous kind of, uh, he was like a retail entrepreneur. He'd, he'd had a fabulous shop in the 60s called Mr. Freedom, a kind of clothes, pop clothes brand. And then in the early 80s, he had a fir the first high-tech shop in London called Practical Styling. And he'd kind of, you know, that had run its course. And then in the 90s, he opened a vintage, uh, basically a modernist vintage shop. And uh, it was kind of half furniture shop, half gallery. And I wandered in there one day just to see him. And, um, and he had one of those prints. He had one of these Hamilton prints in a, in a frame. 
And it's important to, rec to, to remember, that I'd, I'd actually never seen the print. All I'd seen was the reproduction in this book. And suddenly there's this sort of large um, print in front of me. And I thought, fucking hell. <laughs> and I had to sit down on one of Tommy's 60s chairs. <laughs> and he said, you're right. And I said, yeah, give me a moment, Tommy. I looked at this work with its layout, its use of typography, its use of photog and, uh, photography, and most importantly, the, 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 the panel, the side of the toaster is in the print is foil as it is on the front of this book. So basically materiality transforming the paper. And I, and I thought, that's all of my work. I, I saw this print 20 years later and realized that my whole kind of, um, my whole aesthetic approach had been fundamentally shaped by the five minutes that I'd been looking in this book in 75. The, the, the seriousness of it, the dryness of it, the understanding of typography, photography, product design, um, a kind of a reductive approach to information, the, the discipline and order of the whole work, and then the transformation of materials, in, in this case paper, the transformation into thingness by the application of, in this case, foil, but in my case with record covers, foils, die cutting, embossing. I thought, oh, I just thought, oh, damn. I realized that the, the, the values um, embodied within this print uh, were exactly the things that, that had informed all of my work. Tommy said, do you want to buy it? And I said, how much is it? And he said, 2,000 pounds. And I said, I wish I could, Tommy. Um, so I didn't buy it. Um, I didn't have any money then. But it was a very sobering moment. Was it moving? Well, I stayed in the chair for five or 10 minutes. Yeah. yeah. And it was, I mean, it was quite a serious thing for me to reflect upon because it was not as if I'd kind of taken this book out of the library or studied it. So I, it was not as if it had become a, 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 an aware front of yeah, mind yeah, no, strategy. No, no, no. It, it was, was a just, subconscious thing. It was just an entirely kind of um, subconscious thing that had happened, uh, that had actually shaped my way of seeing the world, but more importantly, the way that I tried to do work myself. It, it shaped it all, and and that was quite a shock to me. Yeah. You know, um, you know, I was, you know, I had another three years at college, and 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 uh, you know, actively for five or ten years, absorbed as much information as I possibly could. But actually, the thing that had probably had the most formative influence upon me was this sort of chance moment in the library um, with, with this print. Anyway, so, so that happened. And some years later, um, The Guardian asked me to um, you know, contribute to a you know, favorite work of art. So I talked about Toaster. The Tate asked me to go in and talk about Toaster yeah. for their website. An acquaintance who's here this evening, uh, Mark Adams, I think, saw me writing, uh, saw my um, uh, piece about Toaster in The Guardian. And Mark was um, developing a relationship with Dieter Rams. So just in case yeah. everybody doesn't know, yeah. Dieter Rams was a legendary product designer who works for, Bra for, Braun. for Braun and designed the Toaster, yeah. the product. And, and, and Rams had studied at, at, at Ulm or had been part of the, 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 the programme at Ulm, which of course was a continuation of the Bauhaus. Those of us in the room old enough uh, to remember, um, Braun were uh, an exemplar of, of, of the principles of modernism in everyday products. I mean, it was a delight, you know, that a Braun alarm clock that you could buy for sort of £9.90 was a modernist masterpiece. Um, and that, that, that Dieter Rams was creating, I mean, really, you know, competitive everyday products, but being an advocate of the, 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 the principles of modern design. Um, 
and he had a, a famous shelving system that he developed and it was actually Mark who had decided to, to, to help make that um, available again. Mark was planning his opening for the Vitsu showroom at which he was hoping to have Dieter Rams to come along. Who's still alive. And hopefully Richard Hamilton because Mark was very aware of the relationship between the two. Hamilton and Rams were, you know, became close friends. And so Mark saw me talking about Toaster and asked me to do the invitation for the opening. So I said, well, we have to put Toaster on the front. So, we did that. so I did that invitation. And so then that afforded me the opportunity to meet uh, Rams and Hamilton that evening. And, um, you know, that was difficult. It's always difficult meeting people like that. Um, uh, Dieter was much happier speaking to Anna, my German girlfriend. So, and I just tentatively, you know, went and s- sort of said, um, hello, Mr. Hamilton, <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm a fan. He was very nice. He yeah, was he's gentle, so. He was very, yeah, he yeah. tolerated me. And um, 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 he didn't comment on the, in- he didn't comment on anything, really. I gave him a book. I'd recently had a book, uh, my first monograph of my own. So I gave him a book and, you know, he, you know, nodded and, that was it. Um, that was it. Um, Mark mentioned to me at that time, though, that he had the toaster. So this is, I'm not sure what its serial number is, but this is the toaster that Hamilton made the... The very toaster. Yeah, yeah. Well, in the model. The model of toaster, because it it's a mass-produced item. Um, this is the model of toaster that appears in Hamilton's work. But I'm delighted he told me, and I'm delighted he still has it, because it's here. This is the first time I've seen it. Okay, so, Peter, the toaster is yep. sitting on a white plinth. Okay, so that, okay, that thing's got a bit better with Hamilton. If Mark's Vitsu sh- opening was in 2005, later that year I had a show, and I had an archive show in Zurich at the Migros Museum, and, um, and um, Anna was helping me install the show, and I had certain kind of bits of ephemera, kind of kitschy objet d'art that I'd found that I wanted to display, and um, there was one particularly nice piece, and so I asked the museum for a plinth, imagining that a plinth would arrive in moments. <laughs> and it was a real surprise, actually. It was a problem. Oh, we're not sure if we've got, um, uh, we're not sure if we've got one. What size do you want? And I said, I want a plain white plinth. About, and they went, well, we're not sure. And I went, crikey, how can you, you know. Anyway, so that was an enlightening moment to me that actually plinths don't grow on trees. And no matter where you are, museum or gallery, um, they really don't have them stacked up in the back in all shapes and sizes. And you ask for a plinth and someone says, well, we'll see what we can do. That was interesting. And, and, and as uh, one eventually appeared, and, and as I placed this actually plastic um, bird sound doorbell onto it, I turned to Anna and she was having the same thought I was. Uh, um, the world doesn't need any more plastic doorbells, but it does need more plinths. And, and, and we had a conversation about the fact that the ability to observe and see things, to discover things in the everyday that have some intrinsic value, that awareness is something that has been sort of disseminated t- t- amongst many of us now. I mean, you know, I was able to find this great plastic doorbell in one of those Sunday Times magazines, those the mail order things in the back. It was a kind of Coons type piece that was sort of so wrong it was right. It was 22 pounds and it was a really fabulous sculpture. So I bought it for 22 pounds. And, you know, between Anna and I, our conversation was, well, fucking anyone can do that now, but what they need is the plinth. So the idea was born to create what, was, what we called flat pack plinth. So this is a white cardboard plinth. Um, 
by by Peter Seville. Yeah, but intended for mass production. It folds flat, opens up, one piece of double-sided tape, and you have a plinth. So that became an addition, which I did in 2007. And it's called flat-pack plinth. It was done through my editions dealer, Paul Stolper, who was doing something with Hamilton at the time, and he told Richard Hamilton about it. And I was like, oh no. <laughs> anyway, the message back was that Richard loves the idea and that, that, that he would contribute to a show. So, I, so there was a show for the Flatpak Plinths where right. various people were invited to put something on the plinths to demonstrate its use. And, and Hamilton sent something, a very rare bottle of digestive water with security men from Gagosian <laughs> to put on what was a 50 pound cardboard plinth, which was nice. Um, and then I heard from Paul that Richard was keeping his Braun electric toothbrush on one of these at home. And um, I was just very proud of that. Yeah. I was very proud of that. And um, it's come full circle, hasn't yeah, it? And, yeah. I, and, and, and I think at the evening that that this edition that Alan Christeau is very kindly loaned, that when this edition of Toaster, which has come along later in, in just a year or so before Richard Hamilton died, we were at the opening and Richard was very nice. And in fact, he had me sitting with him at a table for a while having a chat. And that was quite a nice feeling. Did you ever tell him the impact he's had on your life? You try to do that in a conversational way so that you don't sound too sycophantic. Mm. It's a bit tricky meeting heroes. Mm. And I, I, I've met one or two, and you know, them quite early on. In fact, I spent this weekend with one who was a teen hero. And you can't just say that, Peter, and not say okay, who it is. Well, <coughs> well okay, so, so the, <laughs> the first hero, in fact, the only person that I've ever been a fan of in a kind of foolishly sort of sycophantic way was, was Brian Ferry. It was Roxy Music in general, but Brian in particular. Um, so, you know, that's no surprise looking at me. And in 1980, just a, a year or so out of college, yeah, I did a cover. You did? I did Flesh and Blood. Uh, and, and therefore had this sort of, you know, for a few weeks, a bit of a kind of intimate, um, you know, Brian's coming around in an hour, what are we going to show him? It's difficult. It's a very, it's a real roller coaster meeting people who who you've who you who who have developed in a kind of mythological way. There's things about them which are quite disappointing, and then there's other things which are just you know kind of quite um, quite awe-inspiring. So it gets easier and it gets more difficult when you when you meet people like that. So um, and funny enough, we were. We, we happen to be at a thing together this weekend, and he sort of tolerates me. Um, what was the mistake you made? That would be going too far. <laughs> sort of a hit. It was to do with girls. Oh. <laughs> it was to do with thinking you're something before you are. You can get certain situations, certain work situations, will fast track you to a mistaken sense of importance. And uh, there'll be some people in the room who have experienced that in one form or another at work. You can cross lines of protocol mm. which you haven't recognised or your kind of temporary sort of um, um, flash of ego has, 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 has made you miss 
the, 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 the lines, the red lines. So you, over, you overstep the mark? You overstep the mark. You know, you kind of think, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm making fast progress. And then someone points out <laughs> it's not that easy. Um, so you kind of get knocked down. And that, I mean, you know, if it's not too, you know, as with, as with anything, mistakes, mistakes are very educational. If they're not too tragic, um, you know, we, we do, you know, at best try to learn from making mistakes. So, so um, you know, by the time I met Richard Hamilton, you know, I'd had 30, 35 years of, of learning, um, 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 knowing my place, uh, you know, just basically learning how to be respectful and not, you know, I mean, I, I, I knew not to think that I was friends with Richard Hamilton. Mm. And, you know, it is a we'll, you know, don't call us, we'll call you. That's the situation. And so I was just, um, uh, you know, very happy for him to talk to me if he wanted to. But, you know, don't go hanging around. So the question I want to ask, Peter, having yeah. heard, heard that story and the influence of Hamilton and thereafter Rams and modernism and your time at college, uh, is there within you, even today, a, a sort of an inner conflict between the graphic designer and artist. and the artist and that journey and the difficulty you've had I think psychologically in in, in believing you're, you're one and not the other there was and it has been you know we could say a handicap almost a blight to my whole mid-career so I, I was happy and had definitely a kind of a positive and, and, and optimistic momentum for the first 10 years. Mm. And it's exactly 40 years. I mean, I, I, um, I graduated in 78, and we're 2018, so it's 40 years ago. So the first 10 years, so, so from the late 70s until the late 80s, I was doing what I wanted to do. Uh, and so, and, and, and being recognized for it. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, that's a, a pop will recognize you quite quickly, which is, you know, both good and bad. Mm. And I was doing what I wanted to do. Um, you know, by the time I was 30 in 1985, I, I realized the limitations of being a record sleeve designer and it felt quite juvenile. But then relatively quickly, other, other avenues opened up. So Nick Sirota was my first client that, you know, that didn't have a guitar. Um, <clears throat> so I did the work for the Whitechapel and then a year later somebody, my friend Nick Knight, a photographer, introduced me to fashion. So, so um, at the point at which I might have had a bit of a kind of where now crisis after music, things, opportunities kind of appeared. Um, you know, you would, I mean, for those people in the room who will encounter similar things, it's difficult to know where these moments come from in that I can't say any specific thing I did that afforded me a, a new direction. Yeah. But I think that if you, if you want something to happen sufficiently enough, somehow you kind of transmit that. Somehow just in things you say, uh, how you are, places you go, basically you, you, you're doing something that can then open up a, 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 you know, another, a new a opportunity. New, uh, yeah, a new avenue. So it just happened. Mm. Um, who you meet, how you project, what you talk about, who you are when you meet people seems to somehow um, be a catalyst of things that happen. So, so things happened. And, and so I was okay through until the end of the 80s. And then, um, then there was a, a recession in, the, you know, in 1990. Um, and, and there was a sort of setback. Um, 
I didn't really know what my mid-career would be. Uh, I didn't want to work exclusively in fashion. Uh, also, my contribution as a graphic designer was considered absolutely surplus to needs, to, to requirements. There was, <clears throat> there, was no, there was no active relationship between graphic design and fashion culture in the 80s. So the first works that I did in fashion for, for Yoji Yamamoto, special bit of supplementary budget had to be found for me okay. to be paid. So it's, fact, it's an add-on? Totally an add-on. Mm. And in fact, some people's taxi bills were more than my fee. The kind of machinery of fashion communications was not really including graphic design. Yeah. Obviously, it was about photography, it was about photography models and fashion art direction, which is a very special thing. Mm. So it didn't even appear. So, so focusing on fashion, even if I had really wanted to do that, it didn't even appear to be an option. Um, doing identity and communications for the cultural sector is, it's flattering, but it's really boring. You get to decide how much white space goes around an artist's work. That's it. It's like ironing their shirts. And more often than not, they're incredibly rude. The, the, the museums and galleries, they're great, but some of the artists can be really difficult and very, very patronizing. And, um, so, and also there's no budget for it either, so there's no money in it. So the areas where there appeared to be money, corporate identity design, annual reports, this kind of packaging, this sort of thing, I didn't really want to do it. No. I, and, 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 and I had experiences in the recession, you know, having a home repossessed, et cetera, et cetera, that significantly affected my point of view towards the establishment and towards the commercial sector in general. You know, having been brought up in a middle-class family reading The Telegraph, I was not, I had no antagonism towards business. But after three years of a recession and the things that I learned and experienced during that recession, I did develop a real antagonism towards the selfishness of business. So I, you know, by the time I got into the mid-90s, I actually didn't like business people in general. And so I didn't want to work for them. So the whole mid-career, let's say from 95 until now, um, has been unresolved. And I would say, you know, for many years, um, deeply depressing and uncertain. And, it, and my circumstances are still uncertain now. You know, I'm 63 and I pay rent. Mm. So that uh, I can empathize with, you know, the younger people in the room of, of just how impossible it is trying to cope in a city like London or what London has become. But fortunately, I'm sort of kind of, I'm on the kind of brink of being able to retire now Peter, and have a good ending. So well, it's just the middle didn't work. No, but what about this issue about Peter Savile as an artist? Okay, so, well, okay, so, so during that uncomfortable middle period, uh, when I decided that I didn't want to be a servant of business yeah. um, or the businesses that could pay me, a younger, the, 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 the YBA generation who began to appear at the same time in the, the, the mid-90s, um, as I gradually met one or two of them, it became evident that the work that I had done in the 80s had been very influential to those, to those individuals. So, um, ironically, that antipathy I had towards the what I call the juvenilia of the ju juvenilia of the work I, I began to see from a different point of view um, 
Tony Wilson, who was the kind of principal talking head and principal founder of Factory Records, Tony Wilson would refer to what we were doing uh, generally with Factory as the art of the playground. Yeah. And at 23 or 24, that's not really what you want to hear. On reflection, the art of the playground is almost the single most influential work that you can contribute to the society. Um, so my record covers went um, to the cooler kids in the playground. It's a very impressionable period in their lives. Yeah, I mean, you could argue that I mean, those, those record covers spoke to people in a way, in a profound way, that most art doesn't, in fact. Exactly. And the, it's the music... It's the music that opens up the mind to the work. The same work pinned, you know, uh, put through their letterboxes on postcards, it, it would probably, if, you know, if I had 1% uh, uh, response, that would be something. But when it comes wrapped around a Joy Division record, a, a Roxy Music record, or, or a New Order record, or whatever, then there's this absolutely direct fast track to a young person's... Um, uh, imagination, their aspiration, their interests. And their sensibilities. Totally. And the thing that I had done that, that kind of was different and the, the, the opportunity that Factory afforded me of actually complete autonomy in the work um, was that I had referenced directly the kind of canon of design and art culture. In this sense, there's a correlation with, with the thinking and um, ideology and notions within Hamilton's work. Um, which was the notion of an active relationship between consumerism and culture. Yeah. That the, that the former ideas of high and low were becoming uh, anachronistic and redundant, and that the, the new post-war society was a consumer society who could learn through acquisition. This being a perfect example of it. In my often literal quoting of the canon, I see now that I was distributing ideas to young people. Given this seductive context of music, I was introducing ideas which their school curriculum, their family, their, their nation had not thought relevant or interesting to them. So, that, so I realized that my record covers, by actually not fucking around with their cultural references, by not making a parody or, or making light of cultural reference, um, act as a, as a form of enlightenment to, to young people. And, um, and some of them became artists, and some of them became architects, and some of them became van drivers, and some of them became accountants. And, and I meet them now. I started to meet them in the 90s with the YVAs. Yeah. Um, up and coming young artists would either reference me or, or speak to me as one of their significant influences. Yeah. You see, the, the, factory record, the factory covers in particular were nearly art, mm. but they weren't art. They were nearly art. And when why do you say? Why do you say they're, they're not art? They don't, I mean, who are you to judge? Well, there's a. The, you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, but the, the 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 deciding factor is this: there was a there was a format, there was a given format that I knew my way round. Um, I knew my way round a record cover. Okay, <laughs> it's, it's, 
since the age of seven or eight, I knew my way around a record cover. I didn't know my way around a sculpture. I didn't know my way around a canvas. But I knew my way around a record cover. I knew what a record cover was. Yeah. I had an intimate relationship with a record cover. It was not difficult for me to think in the medium of the record cover. That's the first thing. The second thing is somebody wanted it. And they needed it. And they were incredibly nasty to me until they got it. And they were notorious. The work was, was, you know, notoriously or by legend late, but it did get done. And it got done because it needed to exist. The difficult thing with making a work of art is nobody really wants it. <laughs> nobody wants it and nobody is going to chase you for it and nobody is going to pay you for it. Well, you see, I, you, could, you could argue... You could argue, you know, if you think about the Renaissance, you think about Michelangelo. Yes, yes, but it's uh, not like that now. But no, yeah, yeah, somebody needs a ceiling, yes, ceiling painted. Pope, Pope Julius exactly. needs a ceiling painted. So if it was by commission, then I could do it. And there were one or two things that would come up by commission, mm -hmm. and I would do them. And certain ideas, such as the plinth, you know, as I said, the idea came, you know, Anna and I shared that idea in 2005. This happened in 2007, and it's only a bit of white cardboard. It took two years for me to actually still think it was a good idea. But do you, do you resist the idea of Peter Saville as an artist? No, no. I mean, between... The, the most critical moment was around about 2000. I had some uh, kind of partners from Germany and, and um, you know, we were doing a project together in London. We had a, a place called The Apartment. Yeah. And, um, and eventually, you know, we decided to discontinue it and Mike said, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm not sure. And he said, Peter, you are your own brand now. So in, in 2000, you know, a kind of a perceptive friend said, said, Peter, you are your own brand. And I have to say that I am to some extent still trying to figure out how to be my own brand. The, the, the problem with the, the work is that it's very easy to talk your way out of doing it. When you have a commission and a deadline, whether you still like the idea or not, it doesn't really matter. That People are threatening you with physical harm or you cannot pay the rent if you don't deliver this work. Um, whereas when you don't have that situation, it is quite difficult to, to, to think, you know, a, a day later, uh, a week later, a month later, a year later, that that actually wasn't such a good idea and it's probably a good thing that you didn't do it. Um, I didn't actually figure out how to be an artist. Our relationship to art production has changed really dramatically through this period. So we've, we've now gone in the 2000s, we've gone through the period of art, you know, fine art being the, you know, the new rock and roll, to, to an actually now just becoming the new fashion. Mm. So for example, this year in particular, and last year, when someone said to me, are you going to freeze? I said, I don't really care. I mean, I, I went, but I didn't care. I find it very difficult to take the fine art scene as it has now developed. I find it very difficult to take it seriously. And the more that I've learned about it, and the closer I have become to it, and the closer I am to the protagonists in it, uh, both the artists and the dealers, I find it even more difficult to take serious, seriously. Do you, feel, have you, have you, have, do you feel at all rejected by that establishment? Encouraged and rejected at the same time. It's actually very difficult. I mean, it, 
it's very difficult. I mean, people still introduce me as the person who did Unknown Pleasures. Yeah. So that's like 1979. So, oh, this is the person, this is Peter, <clears throat> this is Peter Saville, he did, he did the, you know, he did Unknown Pleasures for Joy Division. And it's like, great. <laughs> so, um, it was quite good. Well, it made an impression. Yeah. Um, um, people say, but you're an artist anyway. It has been an evolving situation. And the thing that I find interesting now is that the early work that I had the opportunity to do, and that's, you know, it was the, the circumstances of Factory are, were absolutely significant yeah. in the opportunity I had. It was a moment in yeah. a city. Other people, other yeah. people could have done it. I mean, the, 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 you know, the graphic design is a service industry. It's not about you and it's not about your work. It's about other people's requirements. You do not write the brief, you don't write the copy, and you don't sign off on the work. It, it is other people's messages to a predetermined audience. That's the word. You're a messenger. Graphic design is, 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 is a being a messenger person. Yeah, but I would still say that's a, a, a major function of the history of art as well. Yeah, the history of art. Well, to tell stories. Yeah, yeah, but someone else's. I mean, I mean, I mean, I would say that, you know, let's say most of the Renaissance painters who had to fight, paint another religious scene yeah. probably would say the same. But, but that's not how we understand, you know, late 20th century art. Okay. Um, so... At Factory, I had this remarkable freedom, and um, and I see now that the these the works I did in mass production, I see those now as artworks of the late twentieth century. Yeah, does everybody agree with that? Oh, you don't. But I totally so, agree with yes, that. Okay, so so I so and I'm quite comfortable with that idea yeah. now, um, and because I'm sixty three, I can almost just be who I am now and focus on my archive and focus on the work that hasn't been seen and the thinking behind the work, make a new work if I feel like it. But, you know, I, I need to be relaxed enough for it to be, you know, a book than necessarily a print edition. It can be either, yeah. you know, it could be a coffee table instead of a sculpture. I basically now have to um, train myself to let something come into the world in the form that it should come into the world rather than thinking oh I have to make a work of art to pay the rent yeah. that itself can be a problem but the other thing that I think is worth mentioning is that um, once you have become acknowledged as something it's very difficult for people or the world to see you as something else. Yeah, you've been pigeonholed. Yeah, and, and because that work I did, you know, as an art director, graphic design, whatever, has became quite famous, um, that's who I am. I mean, I, you know, I, 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 I have to learn to be very grateful and happy about that and not go around thinking, oh, I wish I was something else. You know, I've actually, you know, I have to be, you know, consider myself... Um, really lucky to be who I am rather than uh, resenting who I am and trying to be something else. Um, you know, and the same is true of, you know, kind of actors who want to become businessmen or singers who want to become actors or whatever. I mean, David Barry was a, quite a good actor, but, you know, I mean, he always just had to be David Barry because we could never see him as anything other than David Barry. And, and you know, that apply, applies to a lot of people. Once you are known as something, um, it's 
really difficult for people to think of you as anything else. So I have to just uh, be happy now with being me. Well, I think we're going to finish with this. And it's, there's a bit of literature published by Sir John Soane Museum. It kind of says that it says for more than 180 years, distinguished architect Sir John Soane had a vision to create a place where curious minds could be inspired. He wanted his incredible collection of art and artifacts to enrich people's lives. I think we can all say, can we not, ladies and gentlemen, that Peter Saville has enriched our lives and his riches enriched our last hour. Could you please give him a very warm round of applause?